Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 I want to read two things that have to do with, uh, I think, what Eliot is going through here. To Paul Ricoeur, who is a modern uh, philosopher and hermeneute, who is interested in poetic states of consciousness. This, the, his, uh, his discussion I'm going to quote from is, is uh, densely philosophical and and uh, in, in a way scholarly and it's filled with uh, scholarly-like talk. Uh, but I think what he's saying is worth wading through this to get at. Ricoeur says, Poetry exercises a referential function that differs from the descriptive function of ordinary language. Ordinary language points, and so this means that, Language in its poetic function abolishes the type of reference characteristic of such descriptive discourse, and along with it the reign of truth as adequation and the very definition of truth in terms of verification. So the first thing poetry does is that it destroys or or compromises the ordinary associations we have with language reference. The question is, Ricoeur goes on, the question is whether this suspension or abolition of a referential function of the first degree is not the negative condition for the liberating of a more primitive, more originary referential function, which may be called a second-order reference only because discourse whose function is descriptive has usurped the first rank in daily life and has been supported in this regard by modern science. It's dense, but you see see what he's saying? Poetry may be trying to return us to a more primitive, originary, referential operation, which references are to a larger and more comprehensive and more mysterious cosmos. Ricoeur goes on, My deepest conviction is that poetic language alone restores to us that participation in or belonging to an order of things which precedes our capacity to oppose ourselves to things taken as objects opposed to a subject. Takes us back to a participatory experience. And this is what I've been talking about with sacramental consciousness and metanoia and all that. Hence, Ricoeur says, hence the function of poetic discourse is to bring about this emergence of a depth structure of belonging to amid the ruins of descriptive discourse. I think if I I were to compose a piece on Eliot's later poetry, I would use this as the... the, uh, epigraph to it. The function of poetic discourse is to bring about this emergence of a depth structure of belonging to amid the ruins of descriptive discourse. 
and Eliot has been careful to note the ruins of the descriptive discourse in which he's living. Truth, last line from Ricoeur, truth no longer means verification, but manifestation. That is, letting what shows itself be. It is in this sense of manifestation that language in its poetic function is a vehicle of revelation. Letting what shows itself be. The kingfisher's wing. You see? The drained pool. And something comes of it. Truth is no longer verification, but manifestation. Something coming through. Well, to balance out the uh, philosophical language of Ricoeur, uh, let me go back to Rumi. Here's what Rumi said. This world hurts my head with its answers. Wine filling my hand, not my glass. If I could wake completely, I would say without speaking why I'm ashamed of using words. Here's the new rule. Break the wine glass and fall toward the glass blower's breath. Now, if we took those last two lines and applied them to Eliot's poetic dilemma, I think they'd give us an interesting reference. The new, the old way was, you put, you decant the wine, and then you pour the wine into the glass, and then you give the glass to the reader or the recipient or whatever, and you hope that not much is lost between the cup and the lid. <coughs> That's, that's the old way. And, but Eliot says things have broken down. It's not... That method of transmission is not there. Dante could use that method of transmission because there was, there was a, a set of, a, 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 of commonly shared assumptions about how the transmission takes place. But things are too far gone for us to use that anymore. So the new rule is you break the wine glass and fall toward the glass blower's breath. To me, it's the, the poem must itself be a liturgical experience and not a description of a liturgical experience. Eliot is now going to go on and talk about the problems. He, he hasn't finished talking about the problem. When you, one uses words... The, the, the fact is that words are not neutral to the process. If what one is trying to do is to make the is to uh, make the actual transparent to the real, words are not neutral to that process. They're in a way hostile to it. They resist it. They're trying to speak into existence some other reality. And so Eliot says. Shrieking voices, scolding, mocking, or merely chattering always assail them, always assail the words. The word, capital W, the Logos, the word in the desert is most attacked by voices of temptation. The crying shadow in the funeral dance, the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. So when one sets out to speak the 
to, to have the word with a small w become the uh, conduit for the logos. Uh, one is assailed by all these forces which are which are determined to prevent that from happening. Forces within oneself, forces in one's environment, habits in Ash Wednesday, part five of Ash Wednesday, which I think is being echoed in part five of Burnt Norton, uh, there's this passage. The word, capital W, without a word, the word, logos, within the world and for the world, and the light shone in darkness, and and that light shone in darkness is just set in there. It doesn't it's not it's not part of the logical sequence, but it's an echo back to the prologue to the Gospel of John. The word comes not into a neutral environment, but into a hostile environment. It shines in darkness, and the world does not know it. So the word without the word, word, word within the world and for the world, and the light shone in darkness, and Against the word, the unstill world, world still whirled about the center of the silent word, logos. That is to say, when Jesus is confronted by his condemners, he remains silent in some of the gospel texts. So, how does the word become, break through? Well, one way is by silence break through the resistance of the world. One way is by silence. That's fine, except if you're a poet. See, then what? And that's what he's investigating in, in Part 5 of Burnt Norton. Then what? First, well, you must know that it's not a neutral environment. It's a hostile environment. But that's the way the, the Logos... What, we, it, it, the Logos today in a literary context will have the same problem that it had in Palestine in a historical context. It will come into a hostile environment and will have to suffer the temptations in the wilderness. And the temptations will be, why don't you behave like everybody expects you to behave? But the hostility is part and parcel of the revelation. Now, I don't, I'm not going to do much with Girard today, but let me quote uh, one passage in Girard. Girard says, the word, the logos, that states itself to be absolutely true, never speaks except from the position of a victim in the process of being expelled. The environment for trying to do what Eliot is trying to do is a, is a hostile one. Words crack, strain, fall apart, and are subject to temptation. You see, the word in the desert is most attacked by voices of temptation, and the two temptations are the crying shadow and the funeral dance, and the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. Art in the modern world is tempted to avoid the responsibility for, for making manifest the Logos, the eternal word. And the two temptations that he calls our attention to are these. And they, and they, they are, in a way, perfect archetypes of the two temptations art will face under these circumstances. The crying shadow in the funeral dance, the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. I hesitate to even speculate on, I mean, I just to, to, to ventilate 
of what those set off because they're so they're so multifaceted but in a general sense knowing that Eliot is looking at the problem of art in the modern world one can see uh, one temptation is to try to make art out of the cultural collapse uh, this, this is sort of the avant-garde pose you see to try to break up one more piece of Edwardian furniture and call it art the, the the crying shadow in the funeral dance. And the other is the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera, which is almost the opposite in a way. It's the, it's the attempt to re to to uh, to uh, reinvest the 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 culture with some mythological nimbus that will keep us from facing the facts of the situation. The loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. So those who are gleefully uh, uh, participating in the in the dismantling, and those who are pretending uh, that everything is fine. And uh, one of the, so those two platforms for art that is not up to what Eliot thinks it ought to be up to. Let me let me go to this last thing because I know we got to go. The detail of the pattern is movement. As in the figure of the ten stairs, that's John of the Cross's, the ten stairs in the, in the journey to love, and you go up and down them from ecstasy to humiliation, ecstasy, humiliation, till you get to love. As in the figure of the ten stairs, desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of move, movement, timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. And there we have it again. There's another one of those very dense philosophical passages. Desire, love. Desire is... Desire... Love is not... Des love is not desiring. Desiring is too self-referential. But love is uh, an aspect of time. And as an aspect of time, it is caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. And therefore, there's a feature of it that is desirous. So this is the nature of our of of, our, of a complicated uh, existence, and so he works through all that, and then these four line, five lines, sudden, in a shaft of sunlight, even while the dust moves, there rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage. Quick, now, here, now, always, and that's the breaking in that he's trying to get trying to introduce us to. Now, we had, earlier on, he had said... Oops, I don't have it here in front of me. He had said, uh, disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, but to what purpose, I do not know. But I think now he knows, or he's letting us in on it. And that is, even while the dust moves, there's a shaft of sunlight the shaft of sunlight is invisible except for the dust in the air. Mm -hmm. And the dust is invisible except for the sunlight. The dust is invisible except for the sunlight. That's good. Even while the dust moves, there is a shaft of sunlight and there rises the hidden laughter of the children in the foliage. Another one of those moments of 
those provocative moments, as when the when the drain pool became filled with water out of sunlight, or as when the the, the moment of of chill became illuminated by the flash of the kingfisher's wing. So here again, uh, suddenly there's that moment. And we experience it and immediately drop back in to chronological time. Ridiculous, the waste, sad time, stretching before and after. Uh, You see, quantitatively, the chronological experience is by far the overwhelming one. And I guess the religious tradition would be uh, one that would try to encourage us to recall, as Eliot has here, to recall those moments when we have felt something else break in and to hearken to those moments when we, when we try to uh, comprehend the cosmos and not to leave them out because they're rare or episodic. Burnt Norton is, I think, more densely philosophical than the rest of them, though they're all pretty densely philosophical in places. But I think uh, also that... I think it has to do with the fact that Eliot was not satisfied with the, with the episodic moment of revelation. That's, see, that's the difference between uh, somebody who, who watches a sunset and is filled with some feeling and somebody who goes to church every Sunday. Now, the person who goes to church every Sunday may not get anything, see. But, the, but, the, but I think what Eliot is concerned with is something that accumulates and becomes a... that suffuses one's whole life and isn't episodic. And so he, he's not only trying to present these things, but he's then trying to put them in the context of a... of a... Of a, uh, of a what I, what I want to say, a, a gestalt. He's trying to say, this is just a little piece of a much bigger cosmos. So that these... I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why he's... It's because he, he has to try to say, now this is... this is, has larger implications. It's not enough to just experience it occasionally. I guess I want to um, close at the end just by re... re uh, Touching once again on the letter to the Hebrews. Now, faith is the reality of what is longed for and the conviction regarding things not always seen. And it is that faith, I think, that Eliot is trying to uh, reactivate in his own life and in the life of his readers. And certainly Eliot was, was uh, perfectly happy to affirm the doctrinal positions of the Christian community. But I think the value of those doctrinal positions is that they encourage us to live in a cosmos worthy of us. Uh, and for Eliot, I think it, it, is a, it is a kind of faith which, is a, which has to do with uh, the way I perceive the world moment to moment. In Burnt Norton, Eliot was preoccupied pretty much with uh, the mystery of time, the mystery of time, and but, but most specifically uh, eternity, the atemporal dimension, and how uh, having having uh, eliminated 
eternity or any sense of eternity or the atemporal from from our uh, day-to-day existence, we were stuck in this uh, in this trap of chronology. And Burton Norton is is a was a highly philosophical poem and a demanding poem. Certainly, a, a difficult made my work difficult. And when Eliot wrote it, he didn't intend to uh, have it be part of a series, apparently, but later decided to make it into four quartets. And then he wrote the three, what are called the wartime quartets, the three final quartets. The first of these is East Coker, and East Coker is a village where Eliot's ancestors had lived before they moved in the 17th century to, or his his ancestors moved in the 17th century to to Massachusetts. So he returns there in 1937 for a visit, and uh, as with his visit to Burnt Norton, has uh, whatever experience he has, but when it's time for him to write the poem, which he wrote in 1939, a couple of years later, uh, he recalls his visit to East Coker and uses that visit as the backdrop for his a continued exploration of the mystery of time. I would like to f- uh, put a couple of frames around the poem before we begin. Uh, the first is, um, I want to quote a very brief passage from May Sarton, a modern poet, and a small poem by Roy Shepard called The Interloper. And I'll start with uh, the Shepard poem. The, the ink is hardly dry on this poem. It was published in a... Uh, in a magazine that I subscribe to, and uh, I just got it the other day. But I was struck by how it relates, at least in my mind, to the East Coker passages we'll be talking about today. I should tell you before I read the poem that it has to do with the poet uh, visiting a graveyard. So here's the poem. For serenity we come and a sense of history bleached, and charcoal rubbings of sentiments dried out to smiles, and languid assurance that over the long haul nothing is held against us. Then who is this come posting a hundred years late a date disturbing old bones with new? No relation we claim here Graves of our own choice, freely electing familiarity with worn markers, making peace with death over the moat of centuries. This freshly cut hole trespasses. So he's gone to the graveyard the way occasionally some of us uh, do, uh, and has that... that uh, melancholy, quiet sense of reconciling, of making peace with the passage of time and with death. And that can be done as long as there are old grave markers and one is taking charcoal rubbings and so on. But then suddenly there is this freshly cut hole that intrudes into what was a kind of nostalgic, uh, melancholy mood. And with that recognition of a a fresh death, he comes out of that mood. I think something like that 
applies to Eliot East Coker. The one line from the May Sarton poem is this, Death becomes real and love is forced to grow. The, frame, the Eliot frame I want to put around the poem has to do with uh, the, his own life and the, the details of the publication of the poem. As I said, Eliot's ancestors uh, had lived in East Coker for a couple of hundred years, a couple of hundred years before they moved to uh, to New England. So that's one part of the frame, and the other part of the frame is that on the hill overlooking East Coker is St. Michael's Church, and T.S. Eliot's ashes are buried in St. Michael's Church. So we have his when he starts the poem out by saying, "In the beginning is my end." Uh, he uh, says something that uh, relates to his own uh, beginning and end. On the memorial plaque next to his interred ashes is the following. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. Of your charity, pray for the repose of the soul of Thomas Stearns Eliot, poet, 26 September, 1888, 4th January, 1965. So that's the, his ancestors and his ashes. And then the other two aspects of the frame would be that Eliot wrote the poem in 39 when um, the uh, war in Europe was breaking out. And it was absolutely clear to many people, Eliot among them, that it was simply a matter of time before it swept over England. And so there was, a, there was a haunting mood of the inevitability of war. And I've uh, gone back to some of the accounts of this and uh, discovered that uh, the, the, the fear of total annihilation didn't begin with nuclear weapons. Uh, it turns out that the anxiety over what was considered by many to be the inevitability of, uh, of an air war uh, was one that went to the... To the heart of civilization, the, the feeling was that in a matter of days or weeks, everything could be lost, everything could be destroyed. So uh, it was with a tremendous sense of foreboding that uh, Eliot writes this poem, or at least that's the atmosphere in which the poem is written. And the poem is published on Good Friday of 1940, and not by accident, by the way. That was the chosen public, uh, publication day. So those are things we should know about the poem. I may have uh, said this to you. I'm, uh, I'm playing around with the idea of spending some time next year maybe with uh, with W.H. Uh, Auden's poetry. I don't want to steal any thunder from that prospect. Uh, but I do want to quote something that uh, Randall Jarrell said about Auden and then apply it to Eliot <laughs> because things apply to Eliot as well. Uh, I think it was Randall Jarrell who said it. He said that um, that uh, when some old people are lying on their deathbed, uh, too sick and too close to death to to uh, be intelligible to others, just mumbling and moaning, when their nurses lean over to try to hear what it is they're saying and are unable to hear what it is they're saying. What some of them will be saying will be lines 
from W.H. Auden. <laughs> well, I would like to, well, and, and I think that is, that, that could be said about lines from T.S. Eliot. And what I would like to do is play my part in that and uh, make it a little bit more likely that when, when that time comes for us, we will have some lines from Eliot available to mumble. <laughs> because, because there are some that are, that are eminently suited for that uh, occasion. <laughs> so, uh, so I will try in the course of going through here this morning and uh, in the weeks to follow, try to pick out some of those that we could uh, take as our assignment to commit to memory so that when we need them, they'll be there. <laughs> Okay, Mary Queen of Scots had a slogan which was, In my end is my beginning. Mary Queen of Scots uh, led a life of, uh, of uh, political intrigue and, uh, and religious zeal. And, uh, as she, and was, she was eventually beheaded and saw that kind of an end uh, in sight. And her motto was, In my end is my beginning, namely, death is the beginning of another life. Uh, Eliot is going to have to earn that motto. He begins with the opposite. It's not exactly the opposite, uh, but it's a, it's a uh, mirror image of it. In my beginning is my end. Let me read the first uh, part of of, of part one, and then go back and, uh, and talk about it uh, in a little more detail. In my beginning is my end. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field or factory or a bypass. Old stone to new building, old timber to new fires, old fires to ashes and ashes to the earth which is already flesh, fur, and feces, bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf. Houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loosened pane and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered arras woven with a silent motto. Let me take those first four lines. Uh, well, first, just go back to that uh, opening one, the one that he that really is the theme of, of of East Coker in a way. In my beginning is my end. Now there are several ways in which we could take this, and Eliot means them all. I am convinced. Uh, and and they're not too different from one another, frankly, but but there's slightly different nuance in them. Uh, and I'll just mention. You see. Eliot uh, incubated these poems so that we can assume we can assume that he meant everything we can imagine that he might have meant. Here are some of the things that he is likely meant, I think, by in the beginning is my end. The beginning is everything that brought me to where I am. He is, after all, visiting the place of his, anc his ancestral home. So in the beginning, everything that has led up to where I am at this moment is my beginning. And my end is what is my purpose for being here at this moment. So one 
why does one consult the genealogy? Why are we interested in our ancestors? Why do we learn history? Uh, why, why do we become fascinated by our ancestral uh, origins and so on? Because we have a sense that life is not a little individual project after all. That there, there's something moving through us that comes from elsewhere and goes beyond us. So we go back and say, somehow I can understand where myself and where I am at this moment by seeing all that brought me to where I am. Or the beginning could be any moment that I experience as a beginning. And in that sense, the word end would not refer to a, a, a final end, but to a telos, Greek word telos, meaning a culmination. Uh, I, one could say this, I could only experience a moment as a beginning because in that moment I have suddenly felt the attraction of, of a destiny. Otherwise, I couldn't experience that moment as a beginning moment. I have to feel that I'm being called or summoned or attracted to something. Aristotle talks about the intellectistic impulse. Uh, and it's as though there's a, as though there's a vision of the oak tree somewhere up there that the acorn is trying to reach. And it's when it begins to stir with that vision that it experiences a beginning. So the end is the telos, this thing that I'm called to or drawn to. And finally, the beginning is a new life which cannot, which requires as a prerequisite the death of the old. So in my beginning is my end. New beginnings require deaths. You have to die and be reborn. Well, that's just, we'll just massage that opening phrase a little bit. Uh, Eliot will bring it back in its present form and in its reversed form, the uh, Mary Queen of Scots form, before it's over with. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field of factor or a bypass. I think there's three references to houses. Bodies, the house of the soul in, in medieval sense of thing. Uh, families, in addition to meaning dwellings. Bodies, families in the sense of family lines, tradition, family traditions. The, the house of Atreus, we, see, we talk about the, the house, the family house. The great houses. And uh, civilizations, cultures. So whether we're talking about bodies, that is to say personalities, persons, individuals, or families or cultures, the, the truth is, the poem begins with the truth that they all come and go. Rise and fall. Crumble or extended or removed, destroyed, restored. Or, in their place, is, and I think this fourth line Eliot has chosen has taken a great care in choosing these lines, to set up what he's going to do, particularly in this first two sections. Or in their place is an open field, a factory, or a bypass. Old stone to new building, old timber to new fires, old fires to ashes, ashes to earth, which is already flesh, fur, and feces, bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf. Tremendous 
entropy in those four lines. Everything just runs down. There's a little, it, there's a little perk right there at the beginning. Old stone to new buildings. That's what we want to hear. That's what we want to hear. That's the bait on the hook. Say, oh, good. That's what I'd hoped. Old stone to new building. And then entropy sets in. Old timber to new fires. Old fires to ashes and ashes to earth, which is already flesh, fur, and feces. Bone of man and beast, corn stalk and leaf. Houses live and die. And now there's a, well, there is a time for building and a time for living and for generation. And it is an echo, obviously, of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes goes through that long litany of, uh, of, the, of the effects of time. Uh, just to give you a flavor for it. There's a time for everything, a season for everything under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to tear down, a time to build, and so on and so forth. So Eliot's echoing that. that. A, time for the build, a time for building and a time for living and for generation. And a time for the wind to break the loosened pane. To shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots. And to shake the tattered arras woven with a silent motto. One of the phrases I would like to have you um, have us all take with us today is the line, and a time for the wind to break the loosened pain. The wind in the tradition is the panuma, the spirit, the breath, the life. What one can learn from this line is that it's the wind that's breaking the loosened pain. And that the pain has been loosened in the course of time. That entropy has has uh, has caused the pain to be loosened, and now it's up to the wind to break it. And then we can spell pain in whatever way we want to spell it. Now the window pane, and Elliot I think has intentionally used this earlier. For instance, in Proofrock, he he talks of the of the yellow smoke rubbing its back against the window pane and all that. Uh, the window pane is that, uh, is that glazing against uh, the wind, against the spirit, that which would keep it, keep it out. Uh, so there comes a time, this line seems to be saying, certainly says to me, there comes a time when the wind will break the loosened pane. And... Uh, that part of us that that is totally invested in the in uh, the keeping of drafts out of one's existence will regard that as a disaster. But that part of us that needs a breath of fresh air, uh, in the spiritual sense, may regard it otherwise. And then if we and then if we spell the word pain, P-A-I-N, and begin to feel uh, something else in this whole breakdown of things. And I think I, I say all that, even though a, 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 a professional literary commentator would would probably uh, not have it be that way. I, I feel like we have to. Uh, I feel like what I'm presenting to you is absolutely in concert with the thrust of this poem. 
And I think it is it is inconceivable that T.S. Eliot could have written that line without all of that occurring to him. A time for the wind to break the loosened pane. It's not. It's not. It's, it's not as bad news as it sounds like or feels like at the time. It still feels like a, 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 a terrible thing, but there is some kind of redemption in that line. And to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots, the collapse of the house, the return to nature. And to shake the tattered arras woven with a silent motto. The, the arras is a tapestry, and this is an old tattered tapestry. And the silent motto is a reference to, to the Elliot family motto in East Coker. The family motto was, Be Silent and Act. When he says it's time to shake the tattered arras, he's saying even families, that is to say houses, die. Now, Elliot has gone back to his ancestral home uh, not in order to uh, assure himself that he's part of this, uh, of this uh, uh, operation that death cannot touch. Uh, he finds out something altogether different. Okay, so here's, here's the one, one of the phrases to stay with us. A time for the wind to break the loosened pain. Now, if you can't think of any other on your deathbed and you're looking for one, there's one. <laughs> I'm, do I'm doing my best here. <laughs> In my beginning is my end. I remember he's, he, uh, in the first little section there, he said that when the houses fall and crumble, in their place is an open field or factory or a bypass. Well, in this next little section, I think he's going to take up what he means there by factory. In other words, what, what comes after the great houses? You know, Yeats... Uh, spent uh, entirely too much of his... I, I'm a great fan of Yeats, but I, he spent entirely too much of his poetic uh, life uh, being nostalgic for the great houses, uh, the great uh, families, the great estates. And he, uh, he longed for the return of that kind of traditional society. And Eliot has some of that in him, uh, but he's, uh, he got past it in his later poetry. So, what happens when the houses fall, when the traditional order falls, uh, when you get, when you f wake up and you're in the middle of the 20th century? What, what's it look like? Open field, factories, and bypasses. Those are the three he enumerated. Well, here's the one I think that corresponds to the factory. Now the light falls across the open field. So we still have the field over there on the side. Leaving the deep lane shuttered with branches, dark in the afternoon. So it's late afternoon, light slanting, and the deep lane is now become darker. Where you lean against a bank while a van passes. And the deep lane insists on the direction into the village. In the electric heat, hypnotized. In a warm haze, the sultry light is absorbed, not refracted, by gray stone. 
The dahlias sleep in the empty silence. Wait for the early owl. This is awfully dense material. I, I, it seems to me one of the things Elliot is concerned with here is the deep lane that is insisting on the direction into the village in electric heat hypnotized. In a warm haze, the sultry light is absorbed, not refracted by gray stone. Now, just to work backwards in this poetry, you know, in Burnt Norton, when he came up to the gray concrete, brown-edged, it reflected light. There was water out of sunlight. There was a mo- there was a moment of epiphany. There was a there was a still point, an opening. But this is a warm haze. The sultry light is absorbed. You see, it's not emptiness or fullness. It's not day or night. It's some kind of it's some kind of twilight, sultry light, haze. And so it it is not it it doesn't uh, come alive the way the, the the drained pool did. I think the deep lane has to do with the uh, with the direction of modern Western culture. The deep lane insists on the direction into the village. Where are we going? What are we doing, we human beings? Elliot says in the, in the courses from the rock, do you huddle together because you love each other? What is the meaning of this city? Well, the deep lane that insists on the direction to the village is the, is the thrust of, of Western civilization in the 20th century. And Elliot has grave reservations about it. He says earlier on in this passage, the deep lane is shuttered with branches dark in the afternoon where you lean against a bank while a van passes. I think in this passage he's talking about his own personal history in the 20th century. And this line, you lean against a bank while a van passes, is, a, is one of those like the, the, like the wind breaking the loosened pain to me. Elliot worked at a bank for many years in the London Financial District. While the the intellectual elite, the creative artistic elite, was doing other things. The word van has a number of Uh, You see, if he's just talking about a truck, he could have said truck. Uh, He is, uh, as Jeff pointed out this morning, we're talking. Eliot, great poetry is the right word in the right place. And and Eliot is a master. Where you lean against a bank while the van passes. Well, the van can mean, it's an abbreviation for caravan. But it also means uh, it's abbreviation for vanguard. 
and the vanguard is the first phalanx in a military situation, or the latest trend in a social, cultural situation. So here's a little, I think, biographical detail about T.S. Eliot's past. What, what did Eliot do as a member of the Eliot family from East Coker? Well, he leaned against the bank while the van passed. See? It's a wonderful thing. The other uh, meaning of van is wings. And he has a reference to it in the first section of Ash Wednesday. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will, teach us to care and not to care, teach us to sit still. Well, he leaned against the bank. Uh, wasn't exactly sitting still for him as the van passed. And the van was interested in making history, the vanguard. Those who think history is all there is, when they start making history, make a pretty shoddy version of it. <laughs> and uh, I think Eliot had uh, a sense that that was the parade he didn't want to join. And leaning against the bank and letting it go by was not the most prestigious thing you could do in the 1920s, but that's what he did. So the deep lane insists on the direction. You remember in Burnt Norton, uh, he, he said that the world's moving in appetency on its meddled ways with stain, strained, time-ridden faces. It's the same reference here, I think. The deep lane insisting on the direction into the village in electric heat hypnotized. And then he says, the dahlias sleep in the empty silence. These uh, flowering, sort of springtime flowers are now in their bulbs. They have retreated to the, to the rhizome state, to the dormant state. They've gone dormant. Something is dormant uh, in the world, waiting for another time. And the last line is, wait for the early owl. And the, and the early owl, I think, again, has a, many references, but the early owl is associated with the traditional muse, it's associated with death, and it's associated with wisdom, or in the Christian tradition, worldly wisdom. So wait for the early owl. Uh, the death that the owl would have associated to, I think, in Eliot's time, would be the would be the planes that were expected to come over any time with bombs in them. Wait for the early owl. Okay, all of that is just an opening, a kind of presenting the problem. First of all, presenting the the whole problem of entropy in its sort of generic state, and then presenting this sort of twentieth century composite of someone who finds himself um, on, on the margins of the deep lane and has leaned against the bank while the van passes, knowing that something is dormant and uh, we must wait for the owl, the early owl, 
which could either be wisdom or death. Now, to keep going back to that first little passage, he said that when the houses collapse, there's the open field, the factory, or the bypass. Here's the open field, this next section. And this I'd like to spend a good deal of time on this morning. In that open field, well, let's put this in. He mentions that the deep lane is uh, uh, next to the open field. And when he looks to where the deep lane is headed with its electricity and its hypnosis, he, he does what we all do. He looks over to the open field. He thinks, well, I wonder what the alternative to that is. And his alternative to that that he presents here is, I think, the standard alternative for those who have taken a clear-eyed look at the uh, material tinsel town of Western, modern Western civilization and have wondered, well, what, what else is there? Have we... Aren't we missing something? Aren't we leaving something out? In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire. The association of man and woman in dancing, signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament. Two and two, necessary conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm, which betoken this concord. Well, this is just so lovely. You just hear these lines, and compared to what we just, this sort of electric, hypnotized, all of a sudden we look over there, and it's, it's this wonderful scene. Now, Eliot uh, had an ancestor who was a who was a contemporary of Thomas More and a friend of Thomas More, whose name was Thomas Eliot, and that's what T.S. Eliot's name was. He was the grandson of Simon Eliot of East Coker. And in the 16th century, he wrote a book entitled The Book of Governor, The Book of the Governor, in Tudor English, obviously. And it was a book about how to prepare young men for positions of authority. Uh, it was really a book about education, but how do how do we educate people? How do we educate people so that they they assimilate the very best of the tradition, which was a subject that was keenly of interest to Eliot this whole life. Well, 16th century Thomas Eliot, Sir Thomas Eliot, said the following. I'll just quote a couple of passages that I came across. Uh, he refers to the sacrament of matrimony as the ultimate image of an honorable estate signifying unto us the mystic union that is betwixt Christ and his church. So he sees that as a kind of ultimate symbolic sacrament, matrimony. Uh, but then later on in his book he, he says this, and, and I say that I'm sharing this with you because you see that Eliot's is quoting from. The associating of man and woman in dancing was not begun without a special consideration, as well as for the necessary conjunction of those two persons, as for the intimation of sundry virtues, which be by them represented. 
and forasmuch as by the association of a man and a woman in dancing may be signified matrimony, I could in declaring the dignity and commodity of that sacrament make entire volumes. In every dance of a most ancient custom, there dances together a man and a woman holding each other by the hand or the arm which betokens the concord. So Elliot has gone back and reread his ancestor and uh, assimilated it into his poem and pictured what we're longing for. What we're longing for ultimately is that kind of special uh, concord, the bringing together of the opposites, the marriage of man and woman, coming together in the in the dance, the, the circling dance. This is a beautiful image. And he had said in Burnt Norton, there's only the dance. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dancing, there's only the dance. So we, we already have this thing going on with us about the dance. So now let me read the whole passage. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, on a summer midnight, you may hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire, the association of man and woman in dancing signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament, two and two necessary conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm which betokeneth concord. Round and round the fire, leaping through the flames, are joined in circles, rustically solemn or in rustic laughter, Lifting heavy feet in clumsy shoes, earth feet, loam feet, lifted in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth, nourishing the corn. Keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing, as in their living in the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking and the time of harvest, the time of the coupling of a man and a woman and that of beast, feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dung and death. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Is, have you ever taken one of those ear tests where, you, where the person hits whatever that's called, a little tuning fork, you know, and then brings it closer and closer to the ear and you, you, you raise your hand when you can hear it. This little section is like that. When you start through it, where's the first, where, where do you first hear the note of, the, the, the note that tells you that entropy has not been uh, repealed by this scene? Well, once you, once you, once you hear it, you can go back and realize that there were reasons to hear it from the very beginning. Eliot said, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, and then he grabbed us by the collar and took us too close. What Eliot has done is that he has awakened a longing for something and then disappointed it. And he's a master at that. He wants us to remember that something's been left out of this deep lane insisting on the direction into the village. 
but then he doesn't want us to, 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 to become nostalgic for it in some simple way. A John, a, a John Ashbery wrote a poem called Faust in which he said the he said the hungers must be stirred before the disappointment can begin. And Elliot does that. Beautiful picture. But then when you've already, when you've gone through it, you go back and you realize not only did he say, if you do not come too close, but then he said the weak pipe and the little drum. And down here he talks about heavy feet, clumsy shoes. Mirth, country mirth, the mirth of those long since under earth. Well, I want to go through this a little bit uh, and take some time with it. Round and round the fire, leaping through the flames, or joined in circles. In Burt Norton, he had spoken of turning shadow into transient beauty with slow rotation suggesting permanence. Round and round the fire, leaping through the flames, or joined in circles. See, one problem, one of the ways of, of uh, avoiding the, the fact of entropy and death is to return to a closed cyclical system. And it was the task of the, of the, the Hebrew religious geniuses to get us out of the closed cyclical system. They labored tirelessly in that effort. Not because we don't have great reference, reverence for the seasonal system and, and the cycles of nature, but because that is not where we belong. So round and round the fire, we're, we, we, we long for that. But you remember, Eliot had said, that the dance that we belong in is the dance that has at its center the still point. And there is a world of difference between the dance that has at its center the still point and the dance that has at its center the bonfire. All liturgy, all Christian liturgy or Judeo-Christian liturgy should, should strive for the dance that has as, at its center the still point. And be leery of the dance that has at its center the bonfire. One of the people that took us too close to this scene was Gerard, as well as Elliot. I thought, well, I'll just look it up in case. I thought, well, bonfire probably means uh, the good fire from the French word, you see, for, for good. The bonfire means. Well, I'll look it up, I thought. And it turns out that the assumption that it meant the good fire came into the language about 250 years ago against the etymological uh, background. The etymology is bone fire. And, the, and in Scotland, the original sense of it survived longer because it was called the Bane Fire. And in the Oxford English Dictionary, it has uh, four definitions, and I'll give them to you in the order in which they're presented. A fire that burns bones. That's one. Two, 
a fire that consumes dead corpses. Three, a fire that burns the bodies of the heretics. And four, a festive celebrating fire. Welcome to a etymological uh, study in Girard's premise. Beware of the dances that have at their center a bonfire. But you know, Eliot wanted to awaken our longing because he does want us to join the dance. Just not that one. He wants us to start tapping our toes, so to speak, <laughs> and maybe start getting up and joining the dance, but not that one. Kipling did something like Eliot is doing in a poem called The Way Through the Woods. This is a carbon dating. Those of you who, I said this the other night, those of you who remember us spending time on this poem uh, will be the old timers because I think, we, I think we worked on this poem 12 years ago. They shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again and now you would never know there was once a road through the woods before they planted the trees. It is underneath the coppice and heath and the thin anemones. Only the keeper sees that where the ring dove broods and the badgers roll at ease, there was once a road through the woods. Yet if you enter the woods of a summer evening late, when the night air cools on the trout-ringed pools, where the otter whistles his mate, they fear not men in the woods because they see so few, you will hear the beat of a horse's feet and the swish of a skirt in the dew steadily cantering through the misty solitudes, as though they perfectly knew the old lost road through the woods, but there is no road through the woods. Similarly, it takes us back to a kind of mythological moment, and we feel this other sense of things, and then it's disappointing. This is what Eliot is doing. And Eliot does it supremely, over and over again in this poetry. And I want to just uh, refer to a few of those. First of all, the one we're on right now, the last part of this. Keeping time. That's the problem. The problem of all these poems is time. Well, the world that circles its dancing around the bonfire and the seasons keeps time, but it keeps time cyclical. It keeps time by keeping it in a closed system. But Eliot lives and we live in a world where houses rise and fall, crumble, are destroyed, restored, removed, collapse, return finally to the earth. And that is not to return to the cycle, but to face the fact of mortality in a way that can't be faced in a purely cyclical system. Keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing as in their living in the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of the milking, the time of milking and the time of harvest, the time of the coupling. And notice the journey in this poem from the word matrimony and sacrament to the word coupling. That's just part of what Eliot is doing for us. To the time of the coupling of man and woman and that of beast, feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dumb and death. 
In Ash Wednesday, part four, Elliot had said, Redeem the time. Redeem the unread vision in the higher dream while jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse. That's, that's, a, that's a supreme version of leaning against a bank while the van passes. There's an enormous difference between having the jeweled unicorn draw by the gilded hearse and really and truly redeeming time. He's saying, don't go tell yourself a piece of mythology. That won't do. In Burt Norton, after that little epiphany, the, the, the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. The next thing it says is, then a cloud passed and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird. Go, 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 said the bird. One's awakened by that. Can't, there's no going back. Two things and we'll pass on. Uh, Jacques Maritain said, What some vainly seek at the farthest confines of sleep and abandonment to the unconscious will only be found at the farthest confines of vigilance. A vigilance of the spirit prepared by interior silence. He didn't say that about Eliot's poetry, but it's just so apropos. And I, just, to, just to pick up on this theme that's been running all the way through Eliot's poetry, let me quote from Ash Wednesday, part three. Ash Wednesday is the purgatorial poem. The Four Quartets is the paradisal poem. Uh, but in the purgatorial poem, he's climbing the stairs. At the first turning of the third stair was a slotted window bellied like the fig's fruit, and beyond the hawthorn blossom and the pasture scene, the broad-backed figure dressed in blue and green enchanted the Maytime with an antique flute. Just, just what we've just kind of seen. Blown hair is sweet, brown hair over the mouth blown, lilac and brown hair. Oh, <laughs> oh, my, what a sensuous image. <laughs> Distraction, music of the flute, stops and steps of the mind over the third stair, fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair, climbing the third stair. Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy, but speak the word only. All of those longings have to be brought into play. But if they take us back, we can't let them do that. Those longings have to take us forward, not back. And Eliot brings the longings into play, and then he refuses to let us go back if we think that's where they are. Go, 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 said the bird. <laughs> 